If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Rumours of assassination were practically daily events in Caesar's life. They are what the intelligence people would call noise, constantly hearing about conspiracies and assassins. And I suppose in a way the conspirators might have thought, you know, even if Caesar finds out about it, he probably won't believe it because this is the stuff that he hears every single day. But of course he should have believed it because in the Ides of March, 44 BC, Julius Caesar's time was up. Welcome to episode four of Caesar, Death of a Dictator. In this episode, we're going to meet the men who smuggled their daggers into the Senate House of Pompey that fateful day and find out why they decided to take that fateful step. Ultimately, there were around 60 conspirators in total, but our attention today is going to focus on the three key ringleaders, Decimus, Cassius and Brutus. Both Cassius and Brutus had fought against Caesar in the civil war, though ultimately been pardoned. Meanwhile, Decimus had actually taken Caesar's side in the conflict, before breaking with him in the most violent manner on the Ides of March. To get the lowdown on these three ringleaders, let's hear from Professor Barry Strauss, author of The Death of Caesar. First up, Cassius. Cassius was a military man. He was a very talented general who had saved the Roman army in the east after a a tremendous defeat at the hands of the Parthians. And he saw himself as someone who deserved to have as great a career as Caesar. He was a confirmed Republican and was disturbed by the amount of power that Caesar was gathering in his own hands and also saw his own career not advancing as much as he would have liked because of Caesar's decisions. And now let's get Barry's take on ancient history's most famous assassin, Brutus. Marcus Brutus uh, was much less of a military man. He was more of a politician and more of a philosopher. He was uh, descended, or at least allegedly descended, from the founder of the Roman Republic uh, five centuries earlier. And many people saw him in Rome as uh, Mr. Republic, the defender of the Republican tradition. To add to that, he was married to the daughter of Caesar's greatest enemy. Caesar's greatest enemy had been Cato the Younger, who had committed suicide in the Civil War rather than accept a pardon by Caesar. And many people saw Cato as a martyr to the Republic. And Brutus, by virtue of his own heritage and by virtue of his marriage to Portia, the daughter of uh, Cato, seemed to have taken on the mantle of the Republic. His story is a lot more complicated. He had made his peace with Caesar, and Caesar had treated him very well after the Civil War and had made him governor of Cisalpine Gaul, Italian Gaul. And so it wasn't at all clear that Brutus would uh, break with Caesar, but he decided to do so as a matter of Republican principle and personal honor. And lastly, Decimus. So the third leader of the conspiracy uh, was Marcus Brutus's distant cousin, Decimus Brutus Albinus. He is a more shadowy figure. We don't know as much about him as the other two. But he was very close to Caesar in Caesar's entourage. Unlike uh, the other two 
chief conspirators, he had fought on Caesar's side during the Civil War. Indeed, he had fought for Caesar in Gaul during the conquest of Gaul, and then he had fought for Caesar during the Civil War uh, once more in Gaul. So he was always a, a member of the Caesarian party. But he joined the conspiracy as well, in part, I think, because of his own sense of thwarted ambition. He saw Caesar moving on to others and promoting them above him as Caesar's career moved forward and as Caesar prepared to go to war again, this time in the east against Dacia and Parthia, roughly Romania and uh, Iran. And he, too, was a member of an old Roman noble family. He, too, had some sense of the importance of the republic. And he was married to a woman who we have good reason to think was also a staunch uh, Republican. But it's interesting that we have some letters, correspondence between Decimus and Cicero, and unlike Marcus Brutus, or to some extent Cassius, Decimus doesn't betray a whole lot of interest in the principles behind the Republic. He seems to be much more interested in his own status, his own honor, what the Romans called his own dignitas, his own rank. And so I think that's what motivated him more than any sense of the principles of the Republic. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. So here we have three men who would be joined by dozens of others in opposition to Caesar. But what made them decide that they had to actually overthrow him? As we've heard in earlier episodes, Caesar's growing power had alienated many figures in Republican Rome. But there were also a number of specific incidents in the final months of his life that lit a spark on the growing fuel of resentment towards him. One of which, as we heard in episode 3, was his being made dictator for life in early 44 BC, a move which horrified defenders of the Republic. This was then exacerbated by his interference in the elections that were held at around the same time, further undermining those Republican principles. And there were a couple of other events at around this time that provoked further hostility. Well, there were a number of different episodes where Caesar, at least in retrospect, historians talk about Caesar in the months leading up to his assassination, how he took on airs that he really shouldn't have. For one example, he was sitting in the forum one day when a group of senators, uh, leading senators of Rome, came to him. Uh, he was sitting on a platform, and the standard procedure was to rise to greet uh, senators like this. But Caesar remained seated on a chair as if he were a king on a throne. And this upset people. It was a small thing, it was a subtle thing, but it was the sort of thing that people noticed. There was another episode at a festival called the Lupercalia, which took place about a month before he died, in which Mark Anthony actually offers him a crown, and it seemed to be spontaneous, but I doubt it was at all. I think Caesar was testing the waters. And so Mark Anthony offers him this crown, and Caesar makes a big point of saying, no, 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 Jupiter is the king of the Romans. 
Romans, I do not want it. And, and then the people all shouted with glee about that. So I think people realized that Caesar was testing uh, to see if he could assume the role of king. And so there were just a number of things like that in which Caesar took on royal power in all but name. That's Philip Freeman of Pepperdine University, author of a biography of Julius Caesar. As he describes, Caesar was edging dangerously close to assuming monarchical powers. And if he wanted to be king, then he'd already found himself a queen. His ongoing relationship with Cleopatra might have strengthened his international networks and military power, but it wasn't doing him many favours back in Rome, as Barry Strauss explains. Caesar was married to a fellow member of the Roman nobility, Calpurnia, and they lived together in the official residence of the Pontifex Maximus, an office to which Caesar had been elected earlier on. But Caesar was famous as a ladies' man, and his most famous amour had been with no one less than the queen of Egypt, Cleopatra, uh, herself one of the most renowned women in history. After she had had her affair with Caesar, she gave birth to a son who she called Ptolemy XV Caesar. Caesar never officially recognized this paternity, but he allowed Cleopatra to use his name to call the boy Caesar. Cleopatra's residence, of course, was in the palace in Alexandria. But in the winter of 44, she was not living in Alexandria. She was living in Rome. And she was living in Caesar's palace. Well, I'll call it Caesar's palace, but of course it wasn't his palace. It was his villa. It was one of his residences. It was a villa that he owned outside of Rome across the Tiber River. Nowadays, it's part of the city of Rome, but in antiquity, it was outside the official boundary of the city. Why was she living there? Because as a monarch, she was not allowed to cross into the sacred boundary of the city of Rome. But all everyone knew that there she was in Rome. What was she doing there? She was partly there to represent her country, but she was also partly there to resume her affair with Caesar. There's reason to believe she was pregnant again. The sources suggest that she had a miscarriage shortly after Caesar's assassination. And to many uh, Roman Republicans, this was outrageous that here was Caesar continuing his relationship with a queen and continuing to have children who would be royalty in a foreign state and not just any foreign state. Egypt was the most sensitive state for the Roman Republic. Why? Because Egypt was the wealthiest place in the Mediterranean world, certainly the wealthiest and most important state to remain technically independent of Rome, although unofficially it had been a dependent of Rome for quite some time. The Senate didn't want any one Roman official to control Egypt because that meant they would have access to fabulous wealth and to fabulous resources. And now it looked like Caesar had gone around them and made Egypt practically his personal possession. So there are all these reasons to think that Caesar was too big for the Roman Republic. And so the conspiracy was born. As we know, the conspirators decided to kill Caesar rather than seek to defeat or overthrow him without bloodshed. Was this an aberration or was political murder part of the course in the corridors of Roman power? I put this question to Philip Freeman. 
It's interesting. Ancient Rome was a violent place. It reminds me of nothing so much as Chicago in the 1930s when you're talking about Al Capone and gangs. And uh, so uh, politicians would walk around Rome and they had, and they had for, for a long time with armed guards, with off duty gladiators who would beat up anybody who got in their way. And it was an extremely violent place. I mean, assassination was not at all unusual. Like in Britain or the U.S., it's an outstanding and horrible thing when that happens. But in ancient Rome, and in the ancient world in general, people were assassinated more often. But despite the growing hostility to Caesar, conspiring to end his life was still a very bold step. And the more people who became involved, the greater the chance of the plot being discovered, as Barry Strauss describes. It was very risky for them to grow the conspiracy, and they had to be very careful as to who they let in and to who they didn't let in. So, for instance, one of the greatest men in Rome and greatest proponents of the Republic, Marcus Tullius Cicero, they didn't let him into the conspiracy. In part, I think, because they felt he was really too old to play a part. Most of these conspirators were around the age of 40, so in the prime of life from the Romans' point of view. Cicero was 62 at the time, so not the kind of guy who was going to carry out a conspiracy. So they had to be very careful as to who they let in and to who they didn't let in in the conspiracy. One of the big questions facing the conspirators was how to murder Julius Caesar and who should commit the crime. After all, these were wealthy, influential men who could have hired assassins to do the job. Why then did they decide to get their own hands bloody? There's two reasons for that. One is it it shows the seriousness of their purpose to the Roman people. They want to be able to justify this to the Roman people. They're killing one of the consuls and the man who is dictator and officially is the head of the Roman state. Not a very patriotic thing to do. Another reason is that many Romans believed in the myth that the uh, mythical founder of Rome, Romulus, had gotten to be too big for his britches or too big for his toga, and that he'd been killed by a group of senators at a Senate meeting. Uh, There's no historical verification of this, but that's what many people believed. And finally, it was personal. I think for a lot of these people, it was personal, and they really wanted to kill Caesar themselves. So the conspirators had chosen themselves as Caesar's killers but they still needed to decide on a time and a place. Why was the 15th of March chosen as the date of Caesar's death? Well, as we heard in episode one, Caesar was about to embark on a military campaign against the Parthians, who had killed his former ally Crassus. His plan was to set off that month, which was the traditional start of the military campaigning season. And so if the conspirators did not strike before then, who knows how long they'd have to wait for Caesar's return. The Senate meeting on the Ides of March was the last time the conspirators would all be in Caesar's company. They had good reason to be there. They just weren't supposed to be carrying daggers. And as we also heard in episode one, the venue was a particularly apposite one. So if you go to Rome today and you want to see the ancient Senate house, you can see it. It's on the edge of the Forum. And it's the Senate House that was being rebuilt at this very time and that was later renovated in late antiquity and still stands today. But the assassination was not going to take place in this Senate House because the Senate House at the time was under construction. And the Senate was able to meet in a series of different places that had been consecrated uh, because the Senate meeting had to uh, have the approval of the gods. 
And on this particular day, the Senate was going to meet in the Senate House of Pompey, which was part of one of the greatest building complexes in Rome at the time, the portico, the porch of Pompey, which is this extraordinary combination of covered porticos, so shops and offices, theater at one end, park in the center, and at the eastern end, a Senate house. It's ironic, of course, because Pompey had been Caesar's enemy in the Civil War. Caesar and Pompey had gone to war against each other. And yet this meeting was going to take place in the Senate house dedicated to Pompey and that had a statue of Pompey in it. And finally, we come back to Caesar himself. Should he have been more careful? Did he take too many risks in the final weeks of his life? Here's Philip Freeman again. Well, I think he did. Before the Ides of March, he had all the senators of Rome swear that they would not hurt him and that they would protect him. And of course, they all said, oh, of course, Caesar, we would never hurt you. And so he dismissed his bodyguard. Uh, In that sense, I think Caesar was quite naive that he thought taking the word of the Roman senators that, uh, you know, they wouldn't hurt him uh, was good enough. But of course, it wasn't. Next time on Caesar, Death of a Dictator, we're going to be plunging into the aftermath of Caesar's murder. The conspirators have achieved their aim, but their battle has only just begun. Thanks to my experts for this episode, Professor Philip Freeman of Pepperdine University and Professor Barry Strauss of Cornell University. This podcast was written and presented by me, Rob Attar, with additional checks by Rob Blackmore and our podcast editor, Ellie Cawthorn. The producer was Jack Bateman.